Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. Episode 43. Who's the guest? Who's the guest? It's Josh Chaplin, motherfuckers. <laughs> now, you see, Josh Chaplin and I go way back. We met in high school, and we ended up as partnering philanthropists on the Slugging for Sloan project that Josh was definitely at the head of. Josh, you currently work for the Team Human Show. I do. Is that right? Do you want to tell the folks a little bit of what that's about? Yeah, sure. So right now, I do work in multiple spheres, I guess, under the same umbrella. So right now, I produce the Team Human radio show and podcast, which is Douglas Rushkoff's show. Just to front all of this, opinions expressed during this podcast are explicitly mine, not that of Douglas Rushkoff, Team Human, or Queens College. So just getting that out of the way, I am here as an individual, uh, but playing as a collective, always. Oh, and, yes. and so Team Human is a radio show and podcast about challenging the underlying assumptions of society. Uh, wondering about their embedded biases and working to understand the people that are doing work in the real world or be it academic or business or working with uh, new economic models, be it cooperatives or working for solar powered bakeries and things and working to have discussions with them to understand new models or help to retrieve old models. And this the conversations are wide ranging and they can go pretty in depth or they can just be as something as simple as working to figure out a problem or a question that one of us or Douglas has. So real quickly, just to brief people, uh, Douglas Rushkoff is his name? Yeah. So what has he uh, made a living doing? Douglas Rushkoff is a media theorist. He's an author. He's a professor of media studies at Queens College. Oh, he wow. coined terms like digital native. He created the. Uh, he wrote a book in 1995 called Media Virus, which uh, connected uh, how memes move and uh, connected it to viruses. And so you might hear the term viral media. That's because of Douglas. Wow. And he wrote the first book on early internet culture in uh, the early 90s called Siberia, Life in the Trenches of Hyperspace. And that's a book that explores kind of, like I, like I mentioned, early internet. But the fascinating part about that is when Douglas public was first writing that book, the original publisher actually canceled uh, the book before it was published because they thought the internet would be over by 93. And so he had oh. to go, <laughs> he had to go, Gee, find, he had to go good find, call. <laughs> so he had to go find another publisher and he did. And uh, the internet wasn't over. Oh, very far from it. So yeah. pretty cool. So you have a real fascination. You were talking earlier with media and systems and how systems work. Yeah, for I'm sure. Sh I'm sure we're going to get into that. Yeah. Uh, don't want to hold this up any longer no. for you folks. We're going to do a quick ad read, and then we're going to jam out to Akira the Don, Who Are You, featuring Alan Watts, and then we'll get right on with this bitch. Let's do it. It's none of that. It's something you forgot. See, everybody's forgotten something. We left it out. Just missed it. See? See? And so I can bring this out, what you've forgotten, if I ask you, who are you? Well, you say I'm Paul Jones or whatever your name happens to be. I say, oh, no, no. Don't give me that stuff. Who are you really? Who are you? Who are you really? Who are you really? Two, one. 
episode 43, Josh Chapel, and welcome to the Lodge. How you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be back. I yes. Think, I think I'm a recurring guest, but not technically. Not in the way that the listeners would think. So, for right. those of you who don't know, before the podcast started, I did five trial runs with some friends. Josh was one of the gentlemen kind enough to do these trial runs. I think we did a great job. I remember coming away from that podcast feeling really good and feeling like, wow, I could really do this podcast thing. Because we did, we we filled up a great hour. It's in the archives. Might release it one day. Who knows? But yeah, dude, I, I just want to thank you again for being a part of that and helping me get this off the ground. And yeah, dude, it's real exciting to see you. I'm glad you made it back. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. The Lodge looks great. I see that you've been doing a lot of work with it. Yeah, uh, what's, it's what's, building. It's expanding. What's been going on with you? I mean, what what were some of your original goals here, and how have you either worked to fulfill them, or have they changed? What's been going on? Well, wow, asking me questions. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Actually, things have gone pretty well. I've got an average of about 40 listeners an episode. That's good. Some of them get as high as 70. I think Shane Driscoll's episode is up to 75. Look at that. 75 yeah. listens. And if you include YouTube, it's well over 100. Well, I hear so, that podcasts with over 100 listeners per episode are in the top 10%. So you're like That's pretty interesting. If you combine all, yeah. if you combine Spotify and iTunes with right. YouTube, right. there are handful of episodes that do get into that triple digit mark. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. That's the top 10 percentile. Yeah, I mean, so many podcasts just do like 12, 10, 8. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. yeah. That's so true. I mean, to be able to get even consistently 40, 70, whatever. It it's, fluctuates. It's a start. It fluctuates. Yeah. I, I have a recent episode that's upward up getting close to 50 and I yeah. have a recent episode that's kind of stuck at 27. Right. You know, some right. people are more interested in other guests or are interested in other topics. I guess right. people are looking at the tags or looking right. at the description to see if it's something they want to listen to. Um, but it's really been a blast with so the podcast is doing great. We're close to 2000 total plays slash downloads. Yeah. Um, the YouTube channel is over 100 subscribers. Uh, a lot of the video game videos I'm making have over 1,000 views, which for an infant channel is not yeah. too bad, not too yeah. shabby. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. Ooh. It's a lot of... What's up? It's No, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, the way that we mechanomorphize or, yes. an or anthropomorphize in this sense, you know, we refer to youtube now as an infant it's a baby you know and then that's how we're relating to technology and it's always fascinating to me to hear how the technology shapes language and i think what's cool about it and one of the things i really wanted to accomplish with this podcast was to keep it simple to the point that it's like as long as i'm being me i'm committed to the project right you know it's really all this is is just a a, a portal for me to just shoot out content and the content is just things that i love or things that i do like i love having my friend over for a nice conversation yeah and it's just me you know sharing that with other people and i love fucking playing video games so i live stream video games on right. youtube and twitch like you want to hang with me while i do that hang with me while i do that or i do story analysis videos on some video games and stuff like that it's just as long it's called the landy lodge for a reason it's because i'm just here living my life doing the things i love and making content based off of it. And there's something here for everybody. If you love sports, there's tons of sports podcast episodes I do. If you love video games, God knows there's plenty of that. Philosophy, even even some like government and politic talk, some, you know, culture talk, philosophical talk, the fucking chip gang. You know, it's just, we're just having a blast. Nobody's having more fun than us. It's the first podcast I've ever been on where I can say I joined a gang. You joined a gang? Oh, you're the chip gang. Am I? <gasps> Are you? I don't you know. Just I said didn't you joined it. a game. I don't gang. know. Or did I join a different gang? 
We'll we'll figure that one out. We're, yeah, we'll yeah. have to figure that one out. <laughs> we'll have to figure that one out. We'll we'll get to that. Actually, no, fuck it. Let's let's lead off this episode with some Chip Gang. Let's do it. Let's lead off. Let's lead off. Get warmed <laughs> up. So. You you know what Chip Gang is. The neural I, interface, you put the chip on, it gives you medicinal benefits, it gives you the ability, AI benefits, it's like becoming a cyborg. Are you going to do it? No. No, not at all. No. Not in the slightest. No. Not even a version of it. Like, no. hear me out, hear me out. What if there was just one, right? Like, you have a, you've seen those Apple Watches they got? What if you put your chip in the Apple Watch and it was just like a medical monitor? No. So that when you had a tumor, it let you know. No. When you had... When you uh, got an STD, it let you know. No. You know? If you brought a girl home and she had an STD, it would let you know. No. Not doing it. No. Not doing it. No. Tell me why. I I am for humanity. I am not for anything that is, and this is going to sound radical, but Go for anything it. that is pro-capital, pro-human extraction, pro-getting humans to do things. I don't believe in our current system that we can make a piece of technology that values the human over the market. And there's a great analogy from the 1970s that Steve Jobs says that technology should be like the bicycle for the mind. Uh, and and that means that there was a study done that Near Isle uh, references in uh, his new book where they, they tried to look at how animals move and who's the most efficient mover. And so they studied a bunch of animals and humans were one of the least efficient to move over a specific distance. Uh, using their own two legs. But when humans were given a bicycle, they were far more efficient. Now, the problem is there was a figure in role reversal uh, with technology and humanity. And so what happened is, whereas humans used to use tech, now technology uses humans for the benefit of capital. And so inherently, anything that happens with chip gang, especially in this socio-political and socio-economic environment, is going to be uh, human extraction. It's going to be based on uh, predictive uh, analytics, and I'm not in favor of all of the data from my body being sent to some megalith corporation and then being used to retarget and be used against me. If I end up getting some kind of malicious disease, then fuck it. I am for it. I'm on Team Human. Well, aren't you? There's a lot to unwrap here, but let's yeah. let's let's work backwards. So, just see that's what that's what gets right there. You see what you just said right there. Unless I'm infected with some malicious disease, I'm not doing it. No, you, I said even if. Oh, even if. You're even not doing Oh, okay, 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 okay. Gotcha. Even Sorry. If. Sorry. Even if. Okay, so yeah. then never mind. Okay. So, <laughs> cool. So let's move on to the next point. I completely agree with the end of your thesis there, that I am not going to submit myself to some data collection um, machine corporation that's going to read all my thoughts or what I'm doing or even have influence over them. Who knows? I'm with you. Not about it. Now, here's where the where I think we can get interesting. Sure. So you don't agree you don't like well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please correct me if I say this wrong. Sure. You don't believe in the current system that we have. It depends what you mean. That's what I'm saying. That's why I want to try and kind of find the center there. Right. So let me see, because this is kind of how I feel about it. I feel like the system we have today was not only a necessary system, but a wonderful discovery, but it's time to modify slash upgrade. Right. Okay. Right. So, so it's not uh, like we're wait, saying the system say is sy- bad. I'm not. We're not. When you say system, are you talking capitalism? Are you talking? Democracy? I'm talking the whole. Talking... The whole package. See, that's that's that's, that's, what's, that's, that's the thing. Because there's a lot of components. What component do you want to focus on? Jeez, I mean, I'm I'm most focused right now in my research on technology. Okay. And, I, and technology, and I could probably speak in depth about politics too. But let's start with there, technology. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So, 
here's the fear, right? We f- you we fear a technocratic society where we're led by the worst of us. Already, already happening. Already happening. It's like they're. Where do you measure Silicon Valley in the big players? Now, the big players I'm going to lay out are the military-industrial complex, uh, the Federal Reserve, and uh, Big Pharma. Where do you place big tech? Do you place them in that league, or are they a step below right now in terms of the big players in our little game here? They're right in there. They're right, they're in, right the top, in there. They're okay. right in the top three. I mean, from a Western imperialist stance, what we have to look to understand here both societally and and tonight you and i intimately in this conversation is that capitalism which is the operating system that is driving everything right now from the military industrial complex to big tech is i have to pause you i have to pause i have to pause i i don't think it's fair i don't think you could leave the military industrial complex at the feet of capitalism i think you can because it's a because that's essentially the way that the military industrial complex operates is basic fascism Right. It's basic fascism. It's for it's forcing um market supply using government influence. Okay. You know. Fine. I don't think you can leave fascism at the feet of capitalism. I I think you can leave I think the- capitalism allow I think whether look, it doesn't matter what economic system you have, brutes are going to rise to power and abuse it. So I don't naturally. naturally. So that's what I'm saying is like I don't think you could leave the flaw in human behavior at the feet of these systems. Right. But what I'm trying to argue right now, okay. with it, you said currently in our Current. system. So I'm, I'm speaking about contemporary United States 2019. If you have a big military company, their number one motive, and this is independent of what war is being fought, is, yes. is bottom line. Right? Yeah, it's, they, it's they profit. Need, That's they how need, they operate. They need yes. to make money. And in order to make money, they need the military budget to continue to rise year over year. If that doesn't happen, they're going to hit stagnation. And stagnation means lesser returns for their shareholders. Mm -hmm. So right now, at the core of it, uh, capitalism is inherently part of the problem. I'm not saying it's the root of the military. I'm saying that it is part of the problem of the central operating system. I think it's something that's being manipulated to not operate the way it's supposed to. Because here's the thing. For every corrupt industrial complex like the military or big pharma there's a million small town businesses or local businesses that feed families give people a chance to earn a living and help fill society right so to me that's what i focus on when i see capitalism when someone's being a crony capitalist like these people you know who are gun running weapons to saudi arabia when you're being a crony capitalist like that and using government influence to sell your product I don't see that as capitalism in the way that Adam Smith wrote it. Right. You know, I, I don't. And I agree with you that the system is susceptible to these forces. And right. that's something that we need to improve. But I don't. And it's worth noting that the only reason we call capitalism is because this was a slang term given to it back, I think, in like the 18th or 17th century. Um, it would be the 18th century, I think. It was given or 19th. Anyway, whatever it was given to, whenever they gave it the name, it was a slang term that capitalists adapted to kind of shove back in their face like yeah capitalism right but here's the thing it has enabled for more wealth growth than any other system in the last 13 years we've halved the world poverty rate right like the world you know what i'm saying so there are components of this system that are creating abundance sometimes too much abundance you know, right. in the case so, of food, so like agriculture. There's there's a lot to unpack here. There's, there's so, so much. This, yeah. no, this umbrella is wide right now. And yes. we're 
Right, right now we're looking at abundance. We're looking at the spoils of capitalism. We're trying to trace back to the roots of capitalism, which can go back to the the early twelfth century when, yes. when they established guild uh, uh, chartered monopolies and, and mm-hmm. guilds. And and there's a lot to unpack here. I think we should probably work to focus and center more back on tech because we're we're a little bit off kilter right now. Okay, so he, let's yeah. ask this: Do you think tech can right. plug the holes in the dam of capitalism? I think, or do you think? Are you thinking there needs to be a complete new economic system entirely? I think that when we're looking at what happens, and this is what the original point I was trying to make. Okay. And it's not my own original point, but it's what I agree with. Gotcha. So I would just like to to say that. When capitalism requires unrequited growth, right? You need to continue to grow in order to keep profits going, especially with an expanding population. Now, what in nature grows infinitely what in nature grows infinitely without stopping well nothing except one thing what cancer until it kills its host but then it stops growing so okay so go on i'll let you finish your point go ahead right so the only other thing in nature that's naturally occurring is cancer until it kills its host right now because of our conquests for profit you know we've gone and we've helped colonize and wait wait let, let me just i know i know yeah. okay good, go ahead, we, go ahead. we've helped to colonize and and help i use very very yes, yes. i i don't mean help uh but we've worked to colonize and help extract resources labor uh capital from around the world and, and humans too and when we've run out of land the last thing that we've had to mine is humans themselves and that's what tim Wu would call the attention economy and that's what we're in right now and that's where big tech leads us and so the fundamental shift how do you keep society how do you keep profits high it's by turning society back onto itself it's by increasing uh deregulation it's by increasing the ideal of the individual it's by allowing everybody to be not just participants in the market but also to commodify themselves and when you commodify yourself and you freely give up your data then that data becomes the biggest bubble in the world it's a big data just surpassed oil is the largest commodity in the world for the first time uh just a few months ago so what we're seeing right now is the mining and the colonization of the human and the interest of tech and the underlying system we don't have to get into surplus and the history of capitalism is capitalism that is where it spawned and that was the last essential demand that's what i was trying to drive home okay so in your again in your opinion where do we go with this with tech are are we you ready we need a retrieval of the humanities is what i'm arguing i think that in order to help understand the broader conditions of our society today that we need to turn to the humanities which have been largely obsolesced and well what are what are the humanities i'm, not, Just, I'm, I'm trying to help yeah, the people who are listening yeah. who may not know english you know. and philosophy and and getting back to having conversations and looking at each other in the eye and and not and, and saying you know what i can have a skype conversation but i'm going to opt to go to the local coffee shop and have a discussion with somebody. Even though I disagree with somebody, I'm going to hear so, them out to understand where they come from. Okay, so yeah. now when you say we need to bring that back, mm-hmm. now look, you and I are sitting here right now and doing it. We are. We're doing it. We it's are. here. It is here. Yeah. Um, but when you say bring it back, what are you trying to say? That something like that should turn a bigger profit? No, I'm, I'm trying to say or, that maybe we should think about it 
outside of the framework of profit. I'm trying to well, say... Well, then, but that's what I'm saying. We're doing it pretty much right now outside of the framework of profit. No, we're not. No, we're not. I mean, essentially, for us to do this outside of profit and for us to have the most... You and I have had these conversations when there wasn't microphones and cameras. Like, we, you and I have been doing this for years. Of course, but... You know, just because the cameras and the microphones <laughs> are here... Of course. You know, it doesn't, you know... But so, it is going on. It is going on platforms that are monetized. There is an ad in front of this show. In order for this to be a completely unmediated, non-commercial performance, or not even performance, for it to be an authentic conversation, it would have to be removed of all of these systems. I don't agree with that. I think you could be authentic within this. Do you system. monetize? Do you monetize your YouTube channel? What's in? I don't. But what would be inauthentic about monetizing my YouTube channel? It's, what would be inauthentic about it? Because authenticity, the root of the word authenticity is authentic, uh, auto and thenis. Mm-hmm. Auto means uh, oneself and mm-hmm. in the combined, it's to do something on one's own accord and to trace authenticity back to its original mediated roots. And of course, you can always look and say, well, isn't language a medium? Aren't we using a medium for this conversation? The answer is yes. But in terms of technical Mediation, it, it goes back to handwriting. Uh, John Henry Owens writes about how handwriting was the very first measure of the authentic, and it was because it needed to, uh, and it was used for business, because when you produced a signature, it took place at a specific uh, time and space. I think I, I just want to make sure I'm following. I just yep. want to make sure I'm following you. So yep. you just talk about how the written word is literally the authentic personified. It's uh, in terms of business and mediation. Yeah. So, so, but so here's my question: When a, somebody writes a fiction book telling the story of their heart, is that inauthentic if they sell the book? Why can't the story just be the authentic par- and people? The paradox. You know, the paradox of authenticity is you'll never catch it, and that was going to be the ultimate point. But authenticity can never be traced because it's essentially so, okay. But if subjective. It, then, then I have to then I have to kind of divvy here. So if if you're arguing that authenticity can never be traced then can never be pinned then we don't ever know when something's being authentic or inauthentic right but we're being influenced right now we're i'm being influenced there are forces all around us yeah right right i'm being influenced by the camera i'm telling you that my conversation is less comfortable right now because i'm being recorded i am inherently super uncomfortable being on uh being on camera being on a podcast that's all that's all completely fair so Here's my thing. Here's one of the things I think Western civilization figured out that we should never lose is that at the end of the day, the smallest minority is the individual and the individual is sovereign. What you and I are expressing right now is you're saying these systems, be it the the camera or or YouTube or Instagram, it makes you feel a little uncomfortable and thereby a little inauthentic. Right. Right? Right. I'm sitting here arguing like, I'm this guy whether the camera's rolling or not. Right. I'm I'm this guy. I'm not putting on a show. Right. I, make, I say what's on my mind and right. people react to it. Right. And people will text me when they think I'm being smart and people will text me when they think I'm being dumb. Right. I'm so, just, so I think lot, it's an individual basis. I think a lot of these things we're talking about are going to come down to an individual basis. They can. I mean, but when you're doing, let's, let's use the framework of influencer for a minute. Yes, sir. If, let's say that you wanted to start becoming a nutrition influencer you wanted to start selling uh keto protein sh- yeah protein I wrote, I wrote, I wrote a keto recipe book right yeah the whole, so the whole you, ordeal you start posting what you feel to be authentically yourself you start posting 
pictures of you at the gym, you going on runs in the park, you making uh, great meals, you doing your authentic lifestyle, but it doesn't hit, right? And and you're getting, you know, five likes, eight likes, and you're doing it for six, 12, 18 months, and you're persistent, and you say, shit, I don't have it. I'm not doing this. And you start to look at what other people do, and you say, well, what they're doing is successful, and then you start to copy that. And but I think that, see, what you're bringing up right now is an individual's basis. You're creating an individual scenario. Unless I don't think no, that's no, no, every no. scenario. Well, well, what we're doing is ignoring the media environment of, number one, the digital media environment, and number two, the media environment of the algorithm. And the algorithm is one of the most important aspects of the digital media environment, which James Cohen believes to be a media environment in and of itself, because it works to amplify what is already popular. So you can play to the bias of an algorithm and be seen as authentic because it's what's already popular. And while you may very well be sovereign, for people that were born into the digital media environment, I mean, you can trace back and you can remember walking into a blockbuster. Kids today don't remember 9-11. Kids today don't remember... Of what course. it was like pre-digital. And so since they were born into this environment, they're able to see what was amplified upon a, an existing foundation. And that existing foundation has embedded biases embedded within the system. And when those get built upon, built upon, they get solidified. They say, okay, this is part of what I have to do to be seen as authentic or to be seen as... So here, okay, right. so, so, okay, so here. And so inherently, there I'm are, understand, there are I'm understanding you yeah. much better. I'm understanding you right. much better now. So right. I want to say on a fundamental level, I agree with you. Things like the new digital landscape or things like YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, because like every 10-year-old has a Snapchat now. These things do have influences embedded within them and thereby just by participating on snapchat you're being influenced in a certain way are, are right we, are we on the same page here we are we i figure that's I a lot of what you're saying i should i should work to define a little bit of media environments as well i okay. mean if we're going to be talking about this kind of content yeah i just so, want to make sure i'm right, following you right so a media environment is the dominant social and economic ideals around a media environment so a television media environment uh will emphasize things like uniformity and directionality we're all moving together we went to the moon together we took down the Berlin Wall together. There was a greater sense of unity amongst it because we were all watching the same things. Right. The, and it's actually embedded within the technology. And so when we're in a digital media environment, I think what we're seeing is the result of a paradigm shift. The digital media environment is uh, best classified by a, a series of rigid binary. Ones and zeros is how this technology is programmed. And so what you mm. see is a shift in attitude uh, from the population. That's why you see uh, you know, there is no room for ambiguity. You see the rise of populism. You see a lot of attitudes Worldwide, being, yeah. you see the rise of people being yes or no. Uh, you see commodification of politics. You see it turning into sport. You're either Trump or Hillary. It's almost like Mets or Yankees. But you it's see kind of been that way f before the digital landscape. No, I mean, you could probably, I mean, I don't think that I think, I don't think we as people are all that different. I just, I, I don't know. Because well, what, you're, what you're bringing up, it's like, you're right. I feel like the digital landscape amplifies these things, but I feel like they were already there. In in society, as I'm going to focus on contemporary American society for this discussion. Gotcha. Uh, that's where I'm strongest. Uh, okay. Going back, the most similar 
media environment that I can draw to the digital is the radio environment. And I think when you look at a radio environment, you had the rise of parasocial relationships. And I think that's the most important retrieval of the digital. When you had someone like Adolf Hitler or Franklin Delano Roosevelt or Winston Churchill, they were able to communicate on a one-to-many basis that helped develop some of the core characteristics of mediated authenticity, as Gunn Enley would say. So core, uh, mediated authenticity is the paradox that we were talking well, about. Well, that's like, here's the right. thing. Here's here's where I'm agreeing with you. I, I still hold that it's a very individual basis. Of course. But I think a lot of where you're coming from is Hitler's a good example of this because he was essentially just the mouthpiece of the angry subconscious of the German people for being blamed for World War One. So basically what I'm trying to say is he would do these rallies, right? And he would say certain things. He'd make certain points. And it's well documented in his journals and the people around him that he would take note of what got the loudest response. Whatever got the loudest response moves closer to the center of the rhetoric. And what so, does that remind you of? That it's the example. The it's the example you were bringing up before, where somebody is just going to keep shouting into the void, and maybe what their <laughs> authentic self doesn't stick. So they decide, well, if he over there is doing that and getting hits, I'm just going to copy him because I know that gets hits, and then they get the hits. They become the mouthpiece of what they're trying to attract. You said is such an important word. Do you know what you said? No. You said the void. The void. Yes. What, what made you say that? Oh, it is the void. Okay, but yeah. so Gunn Enley wrote <laughs> that's a terrible Gun, answer, but go ahead. Gun she's a she's a brilliant Dutch scholar, and she wrote a book called Mediated Authenticity: uh, How the Media Constructs Reality. And in it, she works to develop a framework about what she calls authenticity contracts, which she believes are loose, tacit agreements between uh, content producers, audiences, and regulatory authorities if they exist. And what they work to do is establish genre narrative conventions uh, for a particular medium that help to gauge what is perceived as authentic, with the understanding that authenticity is never universal. So with that in mind, what we're looking to compensate for is what we lose in human communication. So you and I uh, communicating over Skype, we lose some essential core fundamental conventions of human communication. Exactly. We, we like can't touch. hands on the shoulder yeah. like, I got you, bro. We're, like, you're my dude. We're not seeing... No high fives. No, no... Yeah, exactly. We're not able to see our pupils dilate as right. well. You Shit know, like we're that. not seeing... Yeah. We're not able to sense... You know, like when you get uncomfortable and I'm next to you and I can feel that your energy changes and you have a few beads of sweat. That's true. We, that's true. Yeah, yeah. That's that. a good point. And so in order to help compensate for these missing links in communication over and over mediated communication, we work to fill the void. And the void is what we work to compensate for in mediated communication. So the, the concept of the void is, is fascinating to me also because if we trace back to uh, the Buddhist religion, there's a symbol called the sunyata, which, which means the void, which is essentially uh, working toward a place of peace. The void is where you want to be. It's essentially a, a path to nirvana. Yes. And, and that is just being. But the void is in itself such a fascinating concept because that's what we're always looking to compensate for and that's what the digital takes away the digital takes away a lot of the core biological evolutionary processes that we've developed and it helps uh and it helps us rely on certain conventions and characteristics and pre-existing conditions for us to understand what's authentic and what engenders trust and etc okay so i agree with a lot of what you're saying but one thing i will disagree with is you seem to have a relatively absolutist opinion on how all these new digital influences are affecting us and how it's taking away a lot of those authentic social cues you and I get when we're in the same room as opposed to over Skype. But I'm going to say again, look at what we're doing here. You and I got together in the same room to have this conversation face-to-face -face in the same room. We may not have done it in this fashion if 
this whole podcast and infrastructure wasn't a thing. So in a way, my podcast effectively has brought more people in front of me than I could have ever imagined. There are people who I hadn't spoken to in years who ended up in the very seat you're in and I got to reconnect with them. You know, there, there are people who I hadn't even spoken to since high school who got to sit in that chair. There are people who I'm close with, very close with, who, because I had them in that chair for one hour straight, I got to know a side of them that I didn't know before. So I think, going, going back to Eastern theology, I guess we could say, you brought up Buddhism, the yin and yang, right? All these systems, they're terribly destructive and toxic, right? But on the other side of the coin, aren't they equally as powerful and uniting and encompassing? I mean, think about, like, look at the Women's March. The digital landscape brought that together. That was the largest, most peaceful international protest in world history on record. And the digital landscape brought that together. So I, I really, it's like, I agree with what you're saying. I just want to make mention that we don't forget about the other side of the coin here. That it's not all doom and gloom. It's not all negative. There are positives about this. It's like humans have been given philosopher stones, but they never got a how-to guide. To be sure. But, I mean, I, I agree with so much of what you're saying, and I'm not anti-tech. I'm not. Oh, I, absolutely I am, never. Yeah, I wasn't yeah, saying you were. No, and I, I want to make that important, too, because I think I can come across as a Luddite a lot of the time. <laughs> and so what I would like well, That's to, what I'm trying to prevent. That's what right, I'm trying to bring up the other side. Right. And so I think one of the most important things to mention, and you mentioned a great point, especially with uh, peaceful uh, protests and, and a lot of the, the great things that digital can work to do. I mean, we mm -hmm. saw it in... We saw it in protests in Egypt. We saw it, you know, help mobilize Occupy. Yep. We saw a lot of brilliant grassroots movements. I mean, even in 2016. The Bernie Sanders campaign. Right. Honestly, even the Donald Trump campaign. The Donald Trump campaign helped to take advantage of a lot of the grassroots tendencies of the digital media environment. But what I would like to actually go back to is, is not so much. Uh, I'd like to help explain, in a sense, why this, why this could be concerning. And, and this can be concerning for a lot of reasons. When you're able to understand how and why a commodity is produced, it allows for people to reproduce for co coercive reasons. And I'll, I'll, and I'll explain this. So Jamie Cohen does brilliant work. He writes about and he speaks about and researches about the commodity of authenticity on YouTube. And so what he does is he works to examine the standard conventions of what goes into successful YouTube performances. So he examines things and his primary case study is Tyler Oakley. Okay. And so what he's able to do is look at uh, Tyler Oakley and say, Okay, so he starts a video with a linguistic tick. He starts it with a schwa, which is the, hey guys, that starts every Tyler Oakley video, or most of them. And how that gets co-opted and spread for commercial reasons, because it helps to set a specific genre convention. And when people get used to it, you're able to understand the specific steps that go into successful performances of the authentic. That gets built into the algorithm. And when people are able to understand why performances are successful, you're able to replicate them. And then people are more easily able to be deceived. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Without an emphasis on critical thinking and the humanities, we're going to lose our ability to be able to understand these systems and how technology okay. can help so how do we put an emphasis on it yeah so we have to help to understand number one 
uh, the embedded biases of these systems. We have to understand the underlying assumptions. We have to make sure that we're having conversations with each other. I mean, these sound so grassroots and and elementary, but Mm -hmm. it's so important to not cast other sides as the other with capital O. Mm -hmm. I think we have to be able to understand the roots of a lot of these problems and why we're drawn to digital technology. I think this goes back to our original point about uh, understanding that the bias of these platforms and look, use the platforms fine, but understand where they're coming from. People smoke cigarettes. They know the danger. But, you know, there should be a warning on Facebook that the world's best computer scientists and the world's top clinical psychologists are working to create a newsfeed that has an algorithm that's trying to extract data that can emotion that promotes emotional contagion which a, a great study from uh upstate i think ithaca uh in 2014 showed that when facebook's algorithm uh places negative content on people's feeds yep. they are more likely to produce get a response more negative get, content. get clicks everything well, yeah exactly but we so, all knew that yeah. right but we already know the news but has known that be, for years you would be surprised i mean there is this huge huge backlash in 27 late 2016 early 2017 where people stepped back and said what the fuck you know what happened here why how did trump get elected what happened and and i i still run into people that say wait what and and you would think but i i'm going to conferences and i'm speaking to people and people don't understand this it's it's i'm not saying like the general public understands it but the news corporations have known this for half a century right that the negative is going to get more of a reaction better hits better ratings than the positive right Um, but it wasn't but you know the difference between television and digital on television especially early television you had three to five networks at any given time and everybody was getting the same it was a monoculture exactly now that doesn't exist anymore right and so the way that you click varies your own media environment and you get stuck in bubbles in bubbles exactly well this is why i say to everyone it's like whatever it is you're into like say you're into a conspiracy right we'll go watch something on that conspiracy but make sure you have a balanced diet and you see the other side right look for that conspiracy debunked right and so you know and it's the same thing like if you're on the left (laughs) if you're on the left and you have a lot of liberal journalists you like to listen to on youtube just make sure you have a couple right wing you like to listen to even if you don't agree with them right but you like you just said you don't want to get trapped in your own little bubble it's dangerous it's, it's very dangerous as a thing is like it's the algorithm sensitive too it is the it's algorithm is very sensitive. it's it's real time it's like it's meant to capture who you were last week not who you've been your whole life and thus the commodification of self see when you're never allowed to escape who you were it creates and establishes a foundation of the word identity as noun versus identity as verb which it really should be well i'm gonna go i'm gonna go to biological explanation that every seven years you're a completely new person and the reason i believe that is <laughs> try because using that in court i will i'll try <laughs> I, I, I have the documents <laughs> but i would but the thing is that over the course of seven years every cell in your body gets replaced yeah so literally the people you and I were when we met, there's nothing of those people left except memories. Right. And that's right. what's funny is like memories almost, they transcend brain cells. Right. You get new brain cells with those memories encoded in. Right. Which can lead to a whole other conversation about DNA. But anyway, um, yeah, I guess that's really just my point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and I mean, it's it's a super valid point. I mean, identity is as a verb is one of the biggest things that I would like to push. But I want to I yeah. ask you again because you, you, we kind of spilled off from it. So how do we do it? How do we bring things like the English language and philosophy and debate and discussion and discourse and dialogue? How do we make sure these aren't lost in this incoming technological age? Well, we can digitally. One thing that we can do is say screw it and go back to a system of points and grunts and just say fuck language. You know, <laughs> you know, we. Can just, <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> that, no, I'd rather not. Yeah, I'd rather yeah, not. Right. I mean, that, but people do argue that. And, and that's it's, it's a weird thing. But we have to understand. And, and the point of that argument is really to say, let's understand that the language we're speaking has its own biases. You know? Without right. question. Right, right. I also feel like it also has its own little riddles. Too. It does. It does. It has its I, own little riddles. Like the right. way you trace back authenticity. Right. Right. You know, it's like if you trace back the word genie. Right. You go back. It, it's genius. Yeah. So the real mythological idea is if you find your genie genius, right. you'll get your wishes. Right. You know? Right. But even that genie, genius, has its limitations. It does. Like like love. Right. No matter how much of a genius you are at anything, it's not gonna get you love. It's never. That's a whole different ballgame. No, well you have to be you have to be confident in yourself and in order oh, yeah. and you have to and it, it, there's just such a difference between love and dependency, but that's a whole different podcast. That's that's a whole other sixty minutes. That's a whole yeah, that's, that's a whole other sixty minutes. That's round three at the lodge. Yeah. So <laughs> So, we'll but I'm, I'm a firm believer. Uh, you ask for solutions, and so the the things that I would consider are things that sound so basic and so simple. But I think that being able to, you know, I, I alluded to the other and and seeing each other not as the other, but as all people. And I'm going to talk about an experience that I had as as maybe just the case because for a long time I struggled. I'm going to give a bit of an anecdote here. So. It was in uh, it was the day of the election. I remember in 2016, and I was a big Bernie guy in 2016. I canvassed for Bernie right before the New York primary. He was one of the first people that made me super politically motivated, and I wasn't. You know, I was huge into baseball, yep. and I think I've watched six baseball games this year. You know, if that, you know, I I see him at the gym. I'm not. I I would I struggle to call myself a sports fan at this point, and so and that's a whole other conversation too. But Come the election, I just realized I had no idea what the fuck was going on. I was upset that Trump won, to be sure. But I was more confused and disillusioned and jaded with society in general because I said, man, I feel like this narrative about America, about myself, about identity, about everything has been told to me. And I haven't done a lot of that. And, and to be sure, a lot of that can be put on me, you know, for not mm -hmm. going out and exposing myself and traveling, etc. But I want to understand the systems. I'm not satisfied with just being able to say, okay, one side of the media said this, another side said this, what's truth? Maybe it's somewhere in the middle, maybe it's somewhere else. So I, I, I started a, a master's degree in uh, data analytics and applied social I remember research. that. That's when we were working together. Yeah and, yeah, and I fucking, I dropped out. I said, I can't do this. And I started in media studies. And I did that uh, having not read Marx, having not read... Uh, anyone from the Frankfurt School, uh, not understanding systems uh, thinking or media theory or anything. And, and the brilliant thing about media theory is you help to understand things like political economy, understanding how, uh, you know, politics uh, helps to shape the economy and how the two speak to each other. You understand the systems and media systems and media conglomeratization and how and why uh, media systems act the way they do. And so I feel like that gave me the best grasp of reality. But I come from a very privileged position. And I'm not saying that from a bad spot. I'm saying that it took me realization after realization and the ability to certain resources and connections to be able to understand where I needed to go and that this isn't being emphasized everywhere. And so how do we do that? I think like we said, we have to promote the humanities again because what we've seen is such a fundamental shift toward uh, education as a means of getting a job but here yeah. and not but here's my thing and you're saying promote the humanities and when i asked you what you mean by that you brought up english and philosophy right right okay so my point is how do we promote these things yeah i mean it's well, gonna go what, back what is an action that we can do what is something we can do one off the top of my head says 
to in like what we're doing right now. Yeah. Engaging in dialogue For with sure. one another. Don't have to do it on camera. Don't got to do it as a podcast. But may if you find, I would suggest to anyone, make sure you have an in-depth conversation with someone at least once a day. Just 10 minutes. 10 Exactly. <laughs> 10 minutes. If, don't if talk about it. work. Don't, don't, honestly, don't, don't even talk about like your weekend. Talk about something other than yourself. I think I, I saw right. a quote once. It was like, um, I, I'm going to butcher it. Maybe you can help me. Yeah. It was like, Maybe not. <laughs> it's like, yeah. um, dumb people talk about other people. Right. Uh, average people talk about events. Mm-hmm. Smart people talk about ideas. Right. Right. You know? Right. And being able to flesh things out and help understand that and everything is everything is ambiguous and liminal. And, and those are the things that the digital helps to strip. So, you know, you, you yep. said something brilliant. I mean, you know, how do we do it? We have a conversation with someone else. The other thing that I'm a huge, huge proponent of is is I know this sounds crazy. I know this sounds go wild. for it. Go for it. You know, requiring as fascist as this sounds, Uh-oh. people to Uh-oh. people to to read again. You know, you know, promoting literacy, promoting uh, you know, instead of consuming video and Netflix, uh, you know, working these uh, you know, we're we're stripping the humanities away in public education and universities, and especially on the computer science side. Now, look, I had the brilliant opportunity to work for a tech company last summer. And I'm not going to name the tech company, but uh, it was a brilliant experience. But in working in tech, uh, mostly marketing and media, not the actual tech side, I'm not a coder. Um, The one thing that I see is it's a lack of communication skill. You know, they're able to understand and speak to each other about the core processes and the functions of apps, but they're not. So what could be as simple as saying, uh, someone on Tinder swipes right, and if there's a mutual swipe right, then you get a match, you know, becomes, if user A performs essential function, then there is compatibility amongst the platform, which triggers a successful. And they don't know. It's an to, if and then statement, right? Right. It, coders listening, but but there's no sense of connection. There's no sense of uh, of how to communicate that to the general public. And I think that's what we're seeing in terms of our ability to think constructively or challenge our own assumptions. And I think it goes to ego well, too. Well, yeah. I think a part of this, and like, look, I'm uh, I'm going there, but I'm an agnostic. Okay. Um, I'm not a f- big fan of organized religion. Any of them, considering they're all tainted with pedophilia. Another conversation for another podcast. Yeah. But I feel like having something like church is important. And I'm not even saying it needs to be religion. Hell, I'm not even saying it needs to be spiritual. But you should have something you do once a week that brings people in your community Ritual. together. Ritual. Exactly. Right. Something. Something I bring. I say this to my softball team all the time. This is church. We're a group of people who are committed to this. We show up every day on Sunday and we do it together. We don't always like each other, exactly. but it's okay. But we come together for this, you know? So I think that's one way you could bring that sort of stuff back. And you were saying earlier, forcing people to read. At the same time, I don't want to put down the video content that's on the internet because there's a lot of people who graduated with philosophy major philosophy degrees who didn't know what to do. Right. And a, a number of them, obviously not all of them, but a number of them have started some really interesting podcasts be sure. and YouTube channels where I, 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 I subscribe to this entire like mythology YouTube channel where he pumps out a video like every week about a different mythological figure. To be sure. You know, to and it's sure. like st- it's, and the roots of that, you know. So there's it's just at this and this is like at the same time while we're being robbed of these things, this digital landscape gives us so much more ability and tools than we could have ever imagined. Like 
20 years ago, there was no YouTube for a philosophy student. Well, it was called the library. It was called, it was called Newgrounds <laughs> and E-Bombs World. But right, right. 30 years ago, there was no YouTube for these philosophy majors to do work. You know, there was no YouTube for these people who love books so much. Uh, I follow this one girl on, on YouTube, the Authentic Observer, who she just reviews books. Yeah. And she's really smart. And, you know, she understands archetypes. She understands uh, basic st- plot structure. And there's just so much of this. And it's like, I feel like it's net everything you're talking about, like the humanities, they've never been easier to find. But at the same time, they've never been less emphasized because it's all about... Because it's all clogged. Right. It's and, it, Well, it's not only just clogged. I mean, it goes back to rising inequality in this country. You know, we're, we're, you know the narrative, especially here on Long Island. And, and obviously, it's different all around the country. But you want to go through high school, you want to go to college or not, and you want to get a job. And there's no place. You know, the most common thing is, okay, great. I read Hegel. What job does that get me? You know, there's no immediate ROI. It's a critical thinking ROI. Mm -hmm, Exactly. It's a a logics ROI. Yes. And try selling that to someone that didn't have that embedded in their culture from the youth. You have to learn that. It's definitely a learned thing. Right. It's definitely a learned thing. But you have to work to emphasize it. And when you live in such a digital video culture, it's Mm -hmm. it's difficult. And reading works different muscles in your – Yes. Oh, I'm not saying ditch one for the other. I'm just saying I actually think a healthy diet of both would be great. Yeah, but the reality is nobody reads anymore. I mean, I, I think, don't think that's true, though. I really don't think that's true. I think with things like Kindle, I think even their smartphones, like, honestly, people reading articles or in-depth analysis on their phone, like, that's still reading. Bro, I'm a psychopath. I read a 350-page PDF analyzing the story of Kingdom Hearts on my phone because yeah. I'm a psychopath. But that's still reading just because it's blue well, you're light. Pa- you're passionate. Don't call I'm yourself a psychopath. Passionate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't call yourself. Well, it's a funny way to say you're passionate. Right. But, but I'm I, not I, saying put me in a straitjacket. But you know, I I want I <laughs> I want to agree. I I'm dying to agree. But the reality is, I I mean, maybe, maybe. I think we just got to get better at using these tools. I, I really think, do. I think people like the idea of reading. And look, I I don't think people are reading as much. I think that, they're definitely not. I think, they're definitely I, not. I'm going to say right now that. Yeah, I read I, less I than can, I did five years ago, I can and that's pick, me. I can pick up my phone, right? And I want to read. But what happens every four minutes? Yeah. Turn off your notifications, bitch. Do you really need to know that somebody commented on your dick on Facebook? Like, do you really need to know that? Or can it just be something you look at once or twice a day? Do you really need it to buzz you with every fucking little thing that happens? No, it creates nervousness. So turn it off. No, wait, I'm I'm not saying... I'm I'm not saying to you. I'm I'm talking broadly. I'm talking broadly. I'm sorry. I'm talking broadly. Turn that shit off. What did you have against him? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. No. Nothing. But no. But the, it's it. We live in an attention economy. I mean, this is kind of what I was getting to earlier. It's yes. Funny, it's everything an attention that, economy. Everything. It's a thank you economy. It's it's evolving I, before our very eyes. I really believe it's evolving before our very eyes. I'm worried about the phrase "thank you economy." I'm worried. You know, because I. I I'm not the, saying it should. The entire economy right. needs to be a thank you economy. Right. No. I'm just. I'm just saying about, there's a lot of people who are making a living off thank yous. Yeah. A lot. A lot. A lot, and that's but, a great thing that more, never but, existed. But a lot that more, never existed. But a lot more people are working to a point that they'll never get to, and you could say that as a framework. And I want to tell you, yeah. and this is something I wanted to get at earlier when we were talking about capitalism and all that kind of stuff. It's like, do you know what the real fucking issue is? And this is my, it's just my opinion. This what? is just my opinion from your perspective. Yeah. The dollar bill, fiat currency. You don't like George? I, no, I, I, I love I George. I Do you? 
I do love George he, Washington. He chased he chased one of his slaves that ran away, and, and like he is an incre- He definitely has flaws that date his time. Without question, he did some things that one would consider reprehensible. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. But he's the father of a country that has led to whether we want to talk about it or not. Maybe it's another podcast for another day. But as my research will indicate, and many others will, has led to a wealth. A, a, a plethora of prosperity globally that was never realized before. But that's a whole other thing for another whole day. I want to go back to the dollar. So, the fact of the matter is, we don't have a fixed money supply. Right. What, I, what I mean by that is, there is no fixed amount that our dollar bills can right. be printed. Right. They can be printed infinitely. Of course. And every time we print a dollar bill, the dollar bill in your pocket gets less valuable. Every single year, your dollar, every single year, your dollar is 2% less valuable yeah. than it was the previous year. Right. This is unsustainable. And it's been unsustainable. And the reason this happened, this is why when you look 50, 60 years ago and you see that everybody was prospering, everyone who got a high school degree ended up with a two-story home and a white picket fence. You know why that was? Because they borrowed from the future to benefit the present. And that's what we're dealing with now. Fractional reserve banking. We gave out loans to people that we knew would be unable to pay it back, whether in the form of the housing crisis or in the current student loan crisis. It's the game that's been played where they're taking from the future to benefit their present. And the whole thing comes back to the dollar bill. A private bank issued in 1913 by Woodrow Wilson on December 23rd, when most of Congress was at home eating fruitcake, passed the Federal Reserve giving a private bank the power to control and issue our money. Unsustainable. And we've paid the price. The dollar, I think, is worth, compared to what it was 50, 60 years ago, is worth a nickel to what it was worth back then. Now think about it, right? Think about everybody who's struggling in the world right now. Think about everybody who has to work two jobs. Think about the person with the college degree who can't get a job over 35, 40K, which isn't livable here in New York. Think about all these people who are struggling. They can't handle a $1,000 emergency. They can't build up a savings. They can't. This is all the product of a dying dollar that is worth a fraction of what it used to be. And the system does not adjust itself quick enough around this inflation. If the dollar was worth what it was just worth 20 years ago, somebody making 35, 40K can fucking pay a mortgage. Perhaps. Maybe you have to go back 30 years, but the fact of the matter is, not that long ago, somebody making entry-level salaries today was much different and much more livable. That's really the problem we have. And look, look, just just one more divvy divvy here. is like, with the dollar going down 2% every single year, there's nothing we can do to keep up with that. One day, it's gonna crash. And for good. Well, there's also the other big issue here, right? Which is, as more nations develop, we are seeing mass deforestation. We're seeing the biggest crisis, which we have to talk about, which is climate change. And whether you believe it's man-made or not, and if you don't, I really highly encourage you to I believe it's happening. I, um, here, I believe it. This is the best way I put it. I believe it's happening. I understand that I'm not scientifically sound enough to understand why. It could be both human and natural. I believe it's a mixture of both. At what percentage? I don't know. Well, I'm not. Cl- I'm not a right. climate scientist. Right. But neither am I. You know. Yeah. But, but I can tell you. Go for it. That there's this narrative that human made. So I'm not talking about naturally occurring events or phenomena. Right. I'm just talking about human man influence. Man influence carbon emissions. There's a narrative that likes to be told that it's been a slow burn that we're reaching its apex since the beginning of the industrial revolution. That whatever started then 
But that's a false narrative. Did you know that since the year 1970, 50% of all emissions that are human-made have been produced? And since An Inconvenient Truth came out in 2007, 20% of all carbon emissions ever produced by man have been made. That is a stat- Say that again, say that again, say that again, yeah. sorry. So 50% of all man-made carbon emissions have been produced since the year 1970 on this planet. Gotcha. And 20%- Because everyone has a fucking car now, but go on. And 20%- And the agriculture. And the development of China and Brazil India. and India. Yeah. You're right. And so, and 20% have ha- have occurred since- 2007 when an inconvenient truth came out so so it's rapidly accelerating so i want to i want to make something right. clear because in my in my research right. and look the home team has some cleaning up to do in the way that we do things of course you know we do but it's worth noting that over the last 20 30 years we've made insane progress in cleaning up a some cleaning up our infrastructure to a point new york city isn't necessarily the brown smog that it used to have back in the 80s it's been cleaned up and we've done this to an extent the problem the big problem i really do trust america to get their act together when it comes to carbon emissions i really do and i think there's evidence to suggest that that's exactly what we're doing i hope the big issue not to point the finger and i want your opinion on this what terrifies me is you have countries like we just mentioned like china and india maybe even brazil Definitely who, Brazil. Who, who are not, who are, I'm just, I just don't know. So, but I'm glad you do. J- Jair Bolsonaro is, yeah. Yeah. He's responsible for, yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. I don't know if these countries are going to care. Well, and, and here's is my, China, I don't think here's China's going to care. Here's my point. And that's I, what scares me. I think America, America can uh, get their act together. America, I don't think China will. America, the hubris of America to tell China, India, and Brazil not to lift their people out of poverty through industrialization after America already got their cake. The fucking hubris of you to lift so many people out of poverty, have abundance, and be burning homes in California, be burning excess crop, and then tell us not to take care of our own and get to the level that you just claim to be at. You know, so, I mean, there are big issues, and so those countries are fighting for things like saying, all right, so you don't want us to industrialize at that rate, well, pay us. You know, because you already did it. Well, you're there has to be there. You're you're right to the extent is that you can't. That's what they're. Saying. I'm not about. I'm I'm definitely not about America forcing countries to do something. I I, I don't I don't I, advocate for that. But what I do agree with is something along what you were getting at is that some kind of agreement needs to be made. Well, that's what's happening right now. I mean, the G7 just occurred. But the, and, but here's and, the other. But, but I was just gonna say here's the other problem when it comes to China. Right? It's like, are you really gonna work with a country that's doing a social credit score on its people? See, it's that's ha- the you know, issue. it's hard. That, that's a big. You know, they're they're a, they're a living, breathing human rights violation t- to the likes we haven't seen in years. Well, we we do we do right right right. But we do similar things. I mean, it's already. I mean, uh, a- if, every if country friend, has their human rights if, issues. Well, it, well, I'm talking about social credit. I mean, right now in the U.S. If you have, let's say you took out a loan, you said, I want to go back for my master's degree. Yes. And you have friends that have not yet paid back their loans. They're going to give you a higher interest rate because of your friends and who you associate with. And so, and and people close to you. So, I mean, a, a form of that more invisible already exists here. So it's not like they're, they're just more open about it. You see, and that's the problem that we're we're gonna have to deal with when it comes to big tech. I, I just because like, like that, that's who's driving right. this in China. I mean, we right. got Google out of there. I'm glad we bullied Google out of China. They just I, I don't know if you heard about that, but in July they pretty much ditched the project. No, I didn't hear about. Yeah, that. no, yeah. Google ditched the project because base because basically people we bullied them out. We told them get the fuck out. Um, but good. It's the climate thing is tough, right? But I don't think you we should as a people should depend on this. But I trust we have people that are trying to science their way out of this. Is there any sciencing our way out of it? 
I don't know. But, and this is a whole other conspiracy to begin with, we've been doing a lot of work on weather technology and being able to control the weather and control the climate. Now, that is equally as terrifying as it is hopeful. Right, and and it doesn't help. And not to lend credence or discredit your conspiracy, but, you know, when you when the government reveals that, you know, several decades ago they did put LSD in people's water supply to be able to, you know, alter perceptions and see the level of psychosis that occurred after mm-hmm. administration, you know, it's naive in a sense to say nothing is happening but i am for empirical evidence and i am for the rigorous academic research and studies and scientific studies that have emerged and i highly encourage anyone listening to check out the work of david wallace wells who recently wrote a book called the uninhabitable earth and he talks about all these studies including the statistic i just provided about 50 percent since 1970 and he lays out the case and he says you know what it's it's not about individual action as much as we'd like it to be you taking the train to work is not going to call it you know it's not going to curb enough i mean if the united states stopped producing carbon today and just zeroed out it's emissions like or net zero, i have to pause you i have to pause you because i don't know if i necessarily agree with that it's, it's i want i want to explain we, why i want to explain why i'm just finishing the sentence Go for it's, it. we're 15 percent of the world of emissions and if we cut out 15 percent, we're still not doing enough but to here, but here's the thing it's like I feel like that's the wrong way of thinking about it because you're looking at us as 15% and thinking everything we do stops there. It's like every American is a node in a network. Of course. And that network reaches beyond our borders. Right. Cleaning up your backyard is the best way to get your neighbor to clean up theirs. Uh, if if every individual seriously got their act together, came together and took the necessary action, and some of the examples of this are getting an eco-friendly car or cutting some uh beef out of your diet because a lot of climate change is driven by agriculture all the soybean farms that are being grown that have to feed all the cattle that feed all of us so and most of it comes from brazil and that's what a lot of what's going on with the amazon is about so find if you want to get your meat try to get it local try to get it domestic if you try to cut beef out of your diet try to walk to the store if you can try to carpool if you can i know what you're saying that's not enough to curb climate change altogether but what it does is it sets a pattern. It sets it sets a, almost like a contagion within society for everybody to make these sort of moves. And then that stretches to Canada, and then that stretches to the UN, and that just keep, it just keeps going. I mean, look at the Hong Kong protests that you're looking at. Like these are people with access to information. They don't like what's going on just as much as we don't like what's going on. So I actually think the real answer, because this is kind of what collectivism is about at the end of the day, is. All these individuals, all of us, from all of us here to everybody in China or Hong Kong, getting their acts together and cleaning up their own lives before they go out and demand the government do it for them. Right. And I would love and and I agree that it's important for individuals to assume responsibility for their actions and Mm -hmm. others. But we're not facing this utopian ideal. There's many people that just don't believe in it. So that's number one. Believe in what? Believe in climate change. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're always going to have that. that. Right, of course. Number two is I understand that there's an imperative to want to promote individual change and that you shouldn't want the government to just force you to do something. But we don't have adequate systems in place right now to incentivize people to do it. There's, you know, especially with the level of inequality that exists today, if you're going to go up to somebody and say, okay, cool, you buy a salad with tofu instead of eating a double cheeseburger from mcdonald's and the person's going to pay three dollars for the double cheeseburger or they're going to pay nine dollars 
See, that's, that's my problem. Here's my problem with this misconception is a salad isn't $9. If you buy the ingredients yourself and make it, it'll be under 5 Yeah, but you're ignoring a lot of the other conditions that surround it. I, like I mean, what? A lot of the people have to work two or three jobs and can't afford to cook, don't know how to cook. I mean, that could lie on But that. you don't have to cook a salad. I, yeah, you I, you have to you just assemble time. it. You have to take the time to do it. Yeah, you have to take and look, look. I I understand that there are circumstances where people have it harder than others, but the an- the answer is never going to be to go to the drive thru The answer is, hey, you know what? Instead of going to the drive thru and saving ten minutes, take ten minutes to look up a Google recipe for a salad, so you could spend four or five dollars on something healthy as opposed to. $3 and something unhealthy. And the way groceries work is you spend $10, $15, and you can make five salads from it. Ideally. You know, and like I understand not everybody can afford to do all of these things. There are people who are in dire circumstances who need as cheap food as possible. Right. But most of us can afford to stop buying deli sandwiches at $8 and cook your own damn food. Ideally. And I don't want to hear ideally. It's not. It's not the case. You can cook your food. I, there's students. You don't have to go and get a sandwich. It's. It's not the case, though. It's really. <laughs> it's really not the case. It's ideal, and it, it's when you see that there are people working actually two or three jobs and still moving from homeless shelter to homeless shelter. As I see at the university. There's look, Josh. I'm not. I'm not talking about everybody. There are definitely people who are in circumstances where they are unable. Right. My point was the majority of us. Right. There's definitely selective people who are just in no position where cooking is the last thing on their fucking list. I get it. Right. I'm talking about the majority of us. The majority of us who have twenty to thirty minutes to make something to eat at the end of the day, as opposed to thinking, as opposed to thinking that, you know, it's cheaper to eat unhealthy you can you can eat healthy for pretty much the same amount of money i, I buy five days worth of carrots for two dollars <laughs> you know you eat three pounds of carrots i eat a lot of carrots bro i eat carrots every day dip them in hummus right i think there needs to so but i'm of the elf that you need systemic change in order to f- help facilitate individual and change. i think it's on you and, and i i think it's on and that's this is kind of my point is like I think it's on you and I as individuals to do that. And the reason I say that is like, look, I moved in with my roommate. He didn't really know anything about cooking. You know, it was his first time moving out on right. his own. The best indicators. But, but right. he was here and he watched me cook and he saw that I was cooking meals and he saw the kind of foods I was buying at the grocery store. And he was like, oh, look, he's got his diet figured out. Oh, look, he's got, he knows how to cook that. Me having myself sorted out like that created an influence that allowed him to do the same. And his next roommate's going to see, and my next roommate's going to see, and, you know, and if you have your shit together in that regard, your next roommate's going to see. Right. And it sounds futile because you're so small, but in your lifetime, you're going to know a thousand people, and I'm going to know a thousand people, which means we're one person away from a million and two people away from a billion. Right. You know, that's powerful. And I, I, I understand the need for collective gathering or collective change or why... You know, I can understand why somebody may think the quote unquote government needs to step in. But what I'm trying to say is like, we're the people. We are the government. Fuck them. They're all paid off and criminals. They're always going to be paid off and criminals. I don't think the United States has ever elected a moral president. People don't realize how powerful we are from neighbor to neighbor. And I, I, I really believe that's the answer to a lot of our problems. I really believe that, and you could disagree, and What's anyone's wa- anyone's welcome to disagree. What's driving that? What's driving what? What's driving that feeling of powerlessness? 
who's feeling a powerlessness. You said, you said, you know, neighbor to neighbor. You know, we, we feel like we're not powerful enough to help begin to manifest the type of change that's wide scale. You know, we all know a thousand people and we're, you know, two people from a billion. So why do we not feel that? What's what's the underlying cause there? What's the underlying cause yeah. of why people don't feel yeah, powerful? What is, what is it? I know what you want me to what say. It? It's you're going to you want you want me to say it's social media and the whole new technological no, age. No. No, is that what you want? No, I don't want that. Okay, I think people feel powerless because they're uneducated on how powerful they really are. And I think in some ways, while education did a lot of good things for us, I think it failed us in teaching us how powerful an individual is in the United States of America. It's interesting. So I mean, that's what I think is at the root of it is we were told the government did everything. The government ended slavery. The government did this. The government created that. The government gave women's rights. No, 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 no. People who are sick of the government shit did all of that. People who are sick of the government shit made gay marriage a thing. That's who's doing it. Not the government. But you go to school and the school tells you that it gives the government all the credit. No. Individuals like you and I came together and made these changes. And that's how it happens. It comes from the bottom up. doesn't come from top down. Trickle down economics doesn't work with money. It doesn't fucking work with ideas either. It's ground up. I'm very, very happy you said that. I, 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 I don't know why. I just didn't think that you would go there. Um, alas, I, I think that, yes, 100%, uh, you're spot on. I think that you do need uh, – it's, it's fascinating to me. You say that – we're way more powerful than any one of us realizes. And I think correct. That, and that's our biggest fear too. Cause we don't like hearing that sure. that we don't like hearing that. Cause then you feel like you're wasting it and for nobody sure. wants to feel like they're wasting anything, sure. but it takes the empowerment of individuals to create a powerful collective. And I think that the most important thing for us to realize is that as a collective, we have that kind of power. And when, but the collect, but what's but important I, but, to remember, I just, I'm going to let you go. But what's important to members within that collective, everybody's an individual. We should never lose the importance of the individual. That's everything Western civilization was founded on. It's one of the many things that got right. It's gotten some things wrong, but it's one of the many things that got right. We should never lose the sovereignty of the individual. While becoming a collective and working together is important, let's not forget the sovereign individual. That's what Martin Luther King was all about. That's what our founding fathers were all about. That's part of living in this society. Well, I need to to understand because I think I'm misunderstanding some things and i think you mean certain things and i need clarification so Go for it so you're talking about the individual which is fine and i understand that we are individuals as humans mm-hmm. where does the individual start does it start when you're in school does it start i mean because from the minute that you're born you're born from a mother who and you're born to i most of the time in western civilization you're born to a nurse or a doctor who's helping you i mean where what what defines here's the thing it's like to you it, that, that's a very good question. So there's a lot of answers to that. On a philosophical answer, um, from the time you're born. Not that, not, not that you're not a living thing when you're inside your mother, but when you are born, you're an individual, you become a citizen, you're recognized, you have a name, you're in. You're in the game. Right. New game. But it's like a tutorial. It's like life. It's like we have a system set up that kind of creates a tutorial on becoming an individual And then once you become, depending on what state you live in, 16, 17, 18, the state now recognizes you as an individual, meaning now you are responsible for your actions. If you stole a $1,000 necklace when you were 11, 12, all the law can really do is slap you on the wrist, maybe make you do some community service. But if you steal a $1,000 necklace when you're 16, 17, 18, oh, we can put you in bars. We've, we've, the, the, the state has decided. So to answer your question, the state recognizes it between 16 to 18. 
philosophically, you have to recognize it either in the mother's womb or once it's born. Um, that's where the individual starts. But what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean to be an individual? I think the that's indivi- a great question. I think the individual. Is I mean, a we could myth. do a whole podcast on that. But what I, did you just say? I, I think it's a myth. I think that I think you that, think the individual is a myth. I do. I think it's a great I Western think, myth. I think. Ooh, a great one. God, Josh, we have to wrap this up, dude. Like, you know what? Like, want to cut <laughs> a promo? You want to cut a? Pro- I know, I know, I know. But I, I don't let. I don't like to let these run much longer than they already have. You can cut the first twenty minutes. <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> oh my. God, you think the individual is a myth. I do. I think that we're a collective, uh, communicative species. And but we uh, that's my point, is we are that and an individual at the same time. I think that we're a product of every... I think that... We're connected there. to everything. All is one and one is all at the end of, of the day. Yes. But you are an individual. You as yourself, as a functioning body, you have rights, you have thoughts, ideas, dreams, wills, abilities... You are unto yourself a being of of production and progress and love and expression. You unto maybe. yourself. Maybe. I I have every reason to believe it. Maybe. I have every reason to believe it. I believe it. that I was born at a particular time and I've been helped the entire way. And I believe everybody has been helped in a sense by others that help to form who they are. You pick of up Of course, other individuals. These... I'm that's I'm communities. I'm, Yes. Communities. And what are communities made of? They're made of people. Individuals. People. Humans. Ooh, baby. We've got a fundamental disagreement, I think dude. I think I, the, the, idea, the ideal of the individual. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. How much Karl Marx have you been reading? <laughs> the answer is not a lot. I read people that read Marx. You read people that read Marx. Jesus yeah. Christ. Nah, yeah. I, oh, baby. Dude, you understand that that very idea that the individual doesn't exist, that has led philosophically, religiously, tyrannically, has led to more death than any other idea. Capitalism in Western society has led to tremendous it, amount it, of it, There's bloodshed. Death. There's definitely bloodshed. Definitely. But... I'm not talking about. I think. It's, well, I'm not talking about our economic system. We're talking about a fundamental philosophical idea right now, whether or not the individual exists. And what I'm trying to say is, there are people like uh, China's Mao or Stalin who functioned on the idea that an individual was not important; that it was all about the collective. You give your money to the government because it's about the collective. That that idea. Uh, are you going to give me the real communism's never been tried spiel? But anyway, no. that I, I know, I know. I was no, joke. I wasn't. I was that idea, you, I that was... idea has led to more suffering than any other idea that's been conceived in written history. Look, not to say that capitalism doesn't have its bloodshed, but again, uh, the idea of the individual yeah. has led to more liberation of humans and human rights than any other idea in human history. Seriously, the idea, the thing about it, in the Western world, slavery has become abolished due to the idea that the individual is sovereign. I'm going to say that you're maybe misinterpreting. I think that examining the case of Stalin, of me, of Hitler's misinterpretation. Of I didn't. Nietzsche, I didn't include Hitler. I said Mao and Stalin. Right. So let's, Hitler let's was a different look, story. Let's look at them. They're extreme cases, right? Should I judge capitalism based on Trump? But, but I don't understand how that how how does Trump to capitalism equal Mao to 
uh, the individual isn't sovereign. Well, I'm not talking communism, capitalism. We're talking individual and collectivism. It's a different conversation. To be sure. So I'm, I'm trying to say that what the way that I frame the individual is, or the myth of the individual, is that we are byproducts of every single person that we encounter. And, and that's and that, not wrong. I'm and, not disagreeing with and that. And the myth of the individual, from my perspective, especially a Western stance, is that we've been given too grand of an idea of our own personal narrative within the context of our grander story. And that we, and that by emphasizing the individual, the grand myth here is that we obsolesce the importance of our interpersonal relationships in the name of the pursuit of capital. So I think maybe I've been misinterpreted. I, I'm not going to say it's. I don't. I, I. I. It's not that you've been misinterpreted. I hear what you're saying, and I agree with a lot of what you're saying. What I'm saying is, if you want to leave out the other side of the coin, it leads to nothing but ruin. I'm not anti-collectivism. Um, I'm just saying individualism and collectivism have to work together, and that's something that the West figured out. But when you talk about the individual isn't sovereign, and this is a one-sided coin, this is something that we saw played out in the 20th century numerous times, and it led to nothing but ruin within their own borders and from outside of their borders. Yeah. So it's like, again, I'm not saying collectivism isn't important or it isn't a profound idea. What I'm saying is it's a two-sided coin, and you cannot. You cannot forget about the sovereignty of the individual, and you cannot forget about the importance of the collective. I think both. I think both are very important. I think the. I think. And the, I. I. And I. I see what you're trying to say in the sense that we're all just constantly reacting to everything that's either already happened or is happening. Like you and I, our entire personalities were shaped by the things that happened before we were ever born, and by everything that happened around us once we hit on the the railroad of life. I'm just so, trying to say that there's no such thing as a self-made person. You know, it's a, it's a, it's short. Sure, okay. Look, that's a different conversation to me. I, I, I think you and I can explore that. I think that maybe I've been misunderstood. I'm not saying that the individual is somebody who, you know, acted forthrightly on their own accord and made themselves into who they are. What I'm saying is we need to recognize human beings for the individuals they are and not throw them into collective groups. Like, you know, not like the uh, when they did the roundups for the farmers in Russia for the gulag, when they just I would they, never they threw all. But I'm saying it's like, but they they threw them into a group, tried them as a group, and were able to execute them as a group. And here's the thing: once you start associating people or societies or communities as collectives, once you recognize them as collectives, the sin of one of them becomes the sin of all of them, and that is fundamentally unsound with the idea of the individual. So that that's kind of where I come from. Right. Is like that's why the individual is important. So we is because look, when when my family got here, when my Italian side of my family got here, they were all Italians, right? Right. Was it right to treat them on the basis of every other Italian that was met? No. Was it right to group them in with all the other Italians just because they were Italian or was it right to recognize each Italian as an individual and treat them in regards to their own behavior? If they were respectful, you were respectful back. If they were disrespectful, you disregarded. And it's it's it seems like such a simple idea now, but this was something that was debated over millennia of our history. Right. Is whether or not an individual was ever important. And I right. just I guess the only reason I, I came at you like I did is because I caution at the idea of not recognizing individuals. I think that individual consciousness individual will is a thing i think that 
by saying I'm an individual within the context of what we're in the media environment that we're in today. And individuals deserve liberties. They do. They do. I'm not denying that. Okay. The argument I'm trying to make is that I think it leads to a certain sense of hubris that discredits all of the systems that help us get there. And I think that that's why we have so... And I think that's what happens when that gets out of hand. I, I It's like, everything is a yin-yang. It's like we were talking about when we were talking about the, you know, te- technological systems and social media and all this. It's a yin-yang. Well, I need it's to like, ask... It could be good and it can be bad. It's right, like, but I need to ask, how is it that the most essential workers in our country are not necessarily in factories, are not necessarily in big tech. They're the people that do domestic work. They're the people that care for the elder. They're the people that care for our You're disabled. Right. And they don't get People who build the roads. Right. And they don't, and they're nurses, right? They're people that help to keep our society functioning yep. and caring for our elder. And that isn't recognized as legitimate work. You know, that's, I, it's but not who's who's not recognize who's not recognizing that as as work? Because I don't know. So I haven't met one person. Right, right, no, hold people, on, I just want to say I haven't met one person in my life who doesn't sing the praises of the entire nursing profession. No, I'm not talking about the nursing profession. I'm talking about when someone's grandfather gets too old and they're right. unable to just be able to take care of them and and account for that as work and get paid for the work that they're See, doing. Right. I like this because this is something Andrew Yang talks about a lot. Right. It's one of the right. things I like about him where he talks about how, you know, when his wife is at home with uh, their two sons taking one care of, of them, autistic. one of which is autistic, right. taking care of them, the market doesn't value that exactly. at a dollar bill. Exactly. And now, and now here's kind of my point. The market does value a nurse. That's the other it thing. It does. The market does value, and here, the market values everyone you talked about. But we would all agree they deserve more. They do. Honestly, everyone from the fast food worker to the um, to the guy coding Java in Silicon Valley, they all deserve more. But what they've been robbed of is a functioning dollar bill. And that's that's seriously what I bring this back to. If we had a functioning dollar bill, nurses would have to work half the hours. If we had a if we had a currency that deflated instead of inflated, nurses would be working half the hours and they can get some fucking sleep. You know what I'm trying to say? We wouldn't have to be working 40, 50, 60 hour weeks. We would have moved on to an a, a period where now that we have computers and our work has become more productive, our time is less needed. So you can be more compensated because the dollar has been strengthened. So that you only need to work 25, 30, 35 hours to make a full-time salary because the systems are more productive. But because the dollar has been inflating at 2% a year on a good year, inflating at 2% a year, all this work is continuously getting less and less valued over time and it's not the fault of capitalism it's not the fault of socialism it's not the fault of any economic policy or system it's the fault of the dollar bill itself it's based on nothing it's printed infinitely by a private bank that is not owned by the government or the people private citizens are controlling the issue of our money and everything you're saying i agree with you and i we, we have to wrap this up, but you and I agree on so much more than we disagree. And I commend you for being able to disagree with me and have these discussions that are important. You as well. Because one of the things we talked about that was very important is rediscovering the humanities or emphasizing the humanities. And part of that is, while it is part of, you know, you know, the English language and philosophy, part of it is having dialogue where you can disagree and not want to be at the other person's throat. Right. We have a lot of problems going on right now. We're no stranger to that. I know you have thrusted yourself into the center of it. You're somebody who genuinely wants to help society. That's why I wanted to have you here. That's why I want to continue to have you back on. Um, because you and I do look at things differently, and that's okay. Yeah. But it's important for us to talk, because there's going to be people listening who agreed with you, and there's going to be people listening who agreed with me. 
But you know what? Maybe some of those people, maybe they change their mind on one little thing. Maybe you change their mind on one little thing. Maybe I change their mind on one little thing. Yeah. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems going on. And it's hard to identify where the problem is. My guess has been the thing we use to value our labor. Because money isn't real. Your labor is the only thing that's real. The only thing that actually has value is your labor. The money just represents that. Our representation of value is incredibly flawed. And I think it needs to be fixed. But I don't want to hog the mic as we wrap this up. I want you to get your last piece in. Get in your last piece. Uh, tell the people what you got going on. Where they can find you. And then we'll wrap this bitch up. Wow. That's it's a lot. I mean, I want to. No, I mean, I want to. I'm fascinated. I'm I'm truly fascinated by your mind. There's a lot that I wish that we could have went more in depth on. There's a lot that I want to question just based on your monologue. The one thing that I'd like to leave off on is kind of what I'm all about now, and what I'm all about now is I understand that I have my biases and I have my assumptions because I've been educated in a certain way. I want to say me too. Yeah. And I, I want I just want to be clear. Like, even though I'm passionate about what I talk about, yeah, we're I'm, both on the same. I'm we no both ex- get fiery, yeah. right? I'm no expert as right. passionate as I am about these things. I'm no expert. It's just fun conversation. For it me. is. It is. And I, I, I almost want to do a series with you to talk about some of the ideals about the dollar, because yeah. I think that some of what you're saying is completely accurate. I just think that a lot of what you're saying is a symptom of the root. And I'd love to go back a little bit further with you on okay. a, in a more nuanced way than the little constrained time that we have left, because I don't think that I could, I we're going to say, we no, this is, out. this is going to be a, th- we're going to pick up on this on the next podcast. Okay. We're, we're, okay. we're, yeah, go on. Okay. So that being said, I know that we talked a lot about systems and I feel like I maybe didn't get, enough time to describe exactly what I'm interested in and why. And so I talked a lot about Jamie Cohen's work and I, I'm, I am floored and fascinated by the work because it helped to reveal something about the system of our media environment that I did not realize. And that's how much we as consumers grow accustomed to patterns and how we view authenticity or what is perceived as authentic. And so I'm going to give a little bit of story. This is the first time I'm speaking about this in public. So I I, I want to give this here a little bit of a platform. So about a year ago, I was fascinated by the rise of this politician in New York's 14th district who unseated Joseph Crowley, a longstanding establishment Democrat who was going to be a candidate uh, for the next speaker of the house before Nancy Pelosi got the spot and Joseph Crowley. And how was it? How was it? And we're not going, I'm not interested in getting into her politics right now, but how was it that a 27 year old bartender with a degree uh, in economics from Boston was able to build a grassroots movement to unseat a 10 term unchallenged democratic stalwart through the, young, oh, hold on. and through the young Turks and a young man named Chakrabarty. Right. So, but I'm in, I was interested more so in the means of communication and so how, how they pulled it off. Right. Yeah. And, and so, I'm not saying that this my particular case study is the reason or is not the reason that she won. But I was fascinated last November when I got out of the shower and I got a notification because I was following everything happening. And it was either right before or right after the election. And I got a notification that said Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is live on Instagram. And I said, huh, that's fascinating. I just uh, talked to Jamie about his work on YouTube and I watched as she spoke intimately. One to many, and I say intimately in, in a sense of digital intimacy, in a sense that you feel things that she's speaking to you, and the only thing that's missing is the shared physical presence. You're engaging in real time. And so I was curious about this, but I couldn't quite 
understand how I can turn this into a thesis. Okay, great. She's speaking to us uh, directly in real time. It has ephemerality. It exists in the moment, and then it's gone. You draw... Uh, you know, it speaks to Walter Benjamin of the, Frankf uh, the Frankfurt Group, who describes aura as a, a work of art's essential, uh, essential dignity in a sense, but what it has that is lost in reproduction. So it has a certain aura around it. But it wasn't until a few weeks later when Elizabeth Warren on New Year's Eve announced that she was an, uh, launching an exploratory committee uh, for president of the United States, that she propped up her camera on her kitchen counter and she said, hold on, I'm going to grab me a beer. She went to the refrigerator. She grabs a beer. She says, oh, here's my husband, Bruce. And Bruce enters the picture. She calls him over. And there emerges an authenticity puzzle. People are confused. It, it got so big as to the, the view had a segment uh, talking about whether she was authentic or inauthentic. And I said, that's fascinating. Jamie talks about authenticity. And people are questioning why or whether these performances are authentic, but they weren't questioning AOC's authenticity at the time. They were questioning Warren. So I said, that's fascinating. Ten days later, O'Rourke does the same thing. He, do he does an Instagram story from a dentist chair. And this is when I kind of grasped and understood what I was going to write about for my thesis. He did this performance where he interviews uh, uh, his dental hygienist. And he speaks about how the uh, and, and he speaks about the immigration issue. And there's a huge media backlash against this. And I said, why? Why? And so I looked into Gun Emily's work, and what I figured out is that I, I do work on authenticity contracts, which are, of course, implicit, and they're just working toward an understanding of mediated authenticity, which is, like we mentioned, in and of itself a paradox. But I was interested by how the medium shapes the performance and how populist candidates like AOC uh, like Andrew Yang and like Bernie are more successful than traditional establishment candidates in this setting. And what that means for measures of digital intimacy, how ephemerality contributes to creating a special aura around a performance, and how in a medium like Instagram stories, which has built-in interjections, there's uh, every 15 seconds when you do an Instagram uh, story video, you get an interjection. And you know what every Instagram story uh, performance starts with? It starts with an interjection, a linguistic interjection. The most con it's so, ah, like, um, uh, yeah, so, like, and they all start with that. I have a video that shows that that's how these performances start. Meanwhile, on Instagram Live, you have the conventions of television. You have, hey, guys, you know, you have the YouTube schwa in those performances. And so, ultimately, what I'm fascinated by is that AOC, I argue, set the genre narrative conventions for that platform, similar to how FDR... Uh, helped to engender trust through his fireside chats in the 1930s to help emerge and help define uh, this new medium of communication. I'm also interested, moving forward, in how these performances will shape the spread of mis- or disinformation when nothing is being archived and we're reverting back more toward an ephemeral oral culture versus a very rigid culture and what that means for the paradox of existing in an ephemeral oral space on a hyper-mediated uh, platform that's core function is surveillance and what that means for how people surveil and what they surveil. So essentially, I'm interested in these performances and what they mean for shaping our communication and our culture. All righty. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having I wanna, me. I want to tell people to check out the Team Human show. Yeah, you can do that. I, I think it's very interesting. If, if, you, if you, um, I feel like our conversation is a good basis of what you can expect. 
to an extent, obviously we're not the date. What's his name? David Rushkoff. Doug. Doug Rushkoff. Douglas, Douglas, Douglas yeah. Rushkoff. Him and I are obviously probably very, two very different people with two very different beliefs. But is that what you can expect from the Team Human show? Is just dialogue, debate. I, what 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 can people not exp- debate? Exploration. 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 Discussion. 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 Right. right. Uh, you know, it's and I don't speak on that show. I, you know, I help. I don't know. Like, you you help with right. the show, but I know that's right. that's part of the it's part of the garden you're you're helping to tend. Right, right. So, uh, do you want to tell people where they can find you and the Team Human show? I don't want to tell people where they can find me. I they can go to teamhuman.fm. Me, I'm just gonna be me. You're just gonna be me. Okay, <laughs> so am. so when I, when I do the Instagram, you want me to post? Do you want me to tag Team Human? No, don't do that. Don't tag Team don't, Human. Don't do that. No, Ooh, I, I am not my work. Can I, I tag you then. If you want, I'll tag you. You can tag me. Okay. You can tag my Instagram. That's okay. Yeah, my Facebook's private. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right, motherfuckers. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're gonna have Josh back on. We, him, and I obviously have a lot to talk about. (laughs) Obviously, hours and hours of content. But thank you, everybody who tuned in. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks for having me on the lounge. My pleasure. Lodge. Lodge. It's okay. The whole blinking cosmos with all its galaxies. And forever and ever and ever, whatever it is beyond that, what you might call God in the Western tradition or Brahman in Hindu philosophy or Tao in Chinese. Every one of us is really that, but we are pretending we aren't. And we are pretending with tremendous skill and deception. Who are you?